If you've got a Bible with me, uh, open with me to Exodus chapter 20 is where we're at. Uh, those of you who are new with us today, we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments together as a church over the last several months, and we come to the uh, Eighth Commandment this morning in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Uh, we've seen uh, the, hor- the vertical commandments that are given in the early portion of the Ten Commandments that relate to the relationship that we have with God vertically, and then we made a shift uh, a couple of weeks back into the horizontal commandments, the ones that relate to the, 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 the horizontal relationships that we have in this life, to relating to the people who are around us. And this is one of those commandments that falls into the horizontal aspect of the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, the text is very short, very sweet, and very simple. It just reads, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. And once again, I want to remind you that the Ten Commandments are not the means by which we become redeemed people, right, or redeemed persons. It's not that God has given us the commandments so that we might keep them like a stairway to climb our way up to God, right, so that we might show ourselves to be acceptable to Him. But rather, God has given us the commandments to show us what it looks like not to become a redeemed person, but to live as redeemed people. People have already been redeemed by God's saving work. That's why he doesn't give them to him the, the commandments while the people of Israel are in Egypt and say, if you'll keep all these things, then I'll come rescue you. But rather, after he rescues them and brings them out of bondage and slavery, he says, here's how you live as my people. Here's how you live in freedom and enjoy the flourishing that I intended for human life. And so as we come to the commandments this morning, this command, I want you to know that it's not one of the means by which you become a redeemed person, but it's the means by which you live as God's redeemed people. Okay? So I just want to clarify that if you hadn't been with us. So as we look at this commandment this morning, I want to start by just saying, listen, when you become a parent, um, you learn really quick that there are some rules that you have to very clearly spell out that you never thought would come off your lips. Right, there are some things that you have to clarify for your children as they mature in age from infancy into toddlerhood into, uh, grade, into grade school years and into adolescence. You never thought you'd have to say things that you find yourself saying when you become a parent. Things like this that I found myself saying at times when my kids were a little bit younger. Right, whenever they were toddlers warming around the backyard, we had this big golden retriever. Okay, she's about 60 pounds. Okay, and she just, she was old, and she had hip dysplasia, and she was a little decrepit, but she would go out in the backyard, and she would, we used to affectionately refer to it as a walking poo, right? And so she wouldn't just leave it in one spot, but she would kind of walk around the yard as she did it, okay? And so it was just stuff littered all across the yard. And when my kids were younger, in their preschool years, I had to say things like this, like, don't touch, pick up throw or eat the dog poop, okay? Uh, you, you never think you have to spell that out for another human being, but it's one of the things you have to clarify for them uh, in their immaturity, okay? And when we come to this commandment, it's one of those things that you think, man, it seems to be a pretty obvious thing, and yet for some reason, God feels the responsibility to include it as a part of the Ten Commandments, the top ten, It would seem to be a pretty obvious thing that to steal is to take something that does not belong to you but belongs to another, okay? To violate their personal property, to take something that's not mine, that I don't own, uh, but to take it for myself. Now, as one pastor I was listening to this week said, listen, when you come to this commandment, you would think you would hear a sermon that was just like, 
you know, three points. Point one, don't take stuff that's not yours. Point two, if it doesn't belong to you, don't take it. Point three, okay, if it's not under your ownership, then don't claim it as yours. Let's pray and go eat, right? That would seem to be kind of the point of the of the commandment of the sermon. But listen, I want you to know that this particular prohibition is here, but it also has some implications for us. It's a pretty clear, simple prohibition. God says, listen, do not take things for yourself that do not belong to you. But there are some implications to that that I want us to tease out this morning. And the first one is this. Listen, the first one is this. Part of the command, you shall not steal, means that you and I ought to be people if we're to live as redeemed people. Remember, we're not becoming redeemed persons by keeping this, but living as redeemed people, that we ought to be individuals who honor our neighbor's dignity by respecting our neighbor's property. That we honor our neighbor's dignity by respecting our neighbor's property. And you're like, well, where, are you, where do you get this from? Listen, in, in Deuteronomy, you know what the word Deuteronomy means? It literally means second law, right? Here's the law again. And God repeats the law through Moses to the people as they're on the threshold of going into the promised land. When God delivers them out of slavery in Egypt, right, they wander in the wilderness because the generation hardened their hearts and didn't believe God. And then God, as, as that generation was dying, Moses' farewell sermons recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, one of the things that God spells out for the people whenever they come into the land of promise is this. Listen to what he says. It's kind of like a case study, Deuteronomy is, of the Ten Commandments. He says this, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. See, in those days, there was no barbed wire fencing. In those days, there was no iron fencing. There was no pipe fencing. What you had is you had boundary stones. Bounds with like landmarks, literally, that you placed in the corners of the field to demarcate, to delineate whose property you were now on. So you had these sequence of boundary stones. This was important for the people because God had promised them land as a portion of their inheritance. So land in that day was significant. You think land in our day is significant. So you're like, yeah, I paid a lot for it. Right? But land in their day had a greater significance because it was wrapped up in the promise of God for his people to inherit this property, this land. And so, but what would happen over the years is that as families went into difficult seasons of life or found themselves in financial hardship, they might sell their land or sell a portion of their land off to their neighbors in order to fund and provide for their needs. And yet the God made an allowance for the resetting of everything. Every 50 years, it was called the year of Jubilee, in which they would just push reset on everything. And so regardless of whether or not your family had bought this property from their neighbors, that property went back to their original family of ownership. Okay, every 50 years. Now listen, if you were, say, 10 years old, whenever your family bought a portion of land from their neighbors, and you grew up farming that land, you grew up working that land, you grew up with your livestock grazing that land, you grew up with that land being under your purview and possession, and you knew that when, like, you're 10, so in your older age, like, that reset's coming, they might be tempted to take that boundary marker and shift it 
That's why he says don't move the boundary markers, don't move the landmarks, because it, it delineates the original possession, the original title deed of that property. And all of it goes back, not most of it, but all of it. Whether or not you feel like it's your rightful property or not, it belongs to another because the Lord has said it is to be reset every 50 years. And so God in this case study in Deuteronomy 19 spells this out so that they wouldn't go in and shift the stone 50 yards this direction or 60 yards this direction or 70 yards this direction and thereby when the reset hits, right, maybe the, maybe the family who's it's coming back to, they don't realize where the stone was because they've all passed on since and they've, all they've known is that this was the property that we inherited. And so it's really kind of a, 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 a subtle, underhanded way. This is not like Ocean's Eleven, okay, or Twelve, or Thirteen, where you got George Clooney and Brad Pitt, and they're all just kind of their wacky selves, like pulling off this heist in a casino. That's not what's going on here. But it's a subtle way in which you encroach upon that which belongs to another. And there's at least a couple of ways that we might do that today in which we fail to honor our neighbor's dignity by respecting our neighbor's property. It might look like the borrowing of material possessions or property without return. Anybody ever been guilty of that? You borrow your neighbor's hedge trimmers, you borrow your neighbor's rake, you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower, you borrow your, whatever it is you borrow from your neighbor. And it's just been in your garage for so long now that you forget where it came from and now you're lending it out to other people. Well, it's not yours to lend to begin with. Right? That's a part of this command, the borrowing of material property without return, or perhaps the borrowing of intellectual property without giving credit. You know, in academic circles, you know what that's called? Plagiarism. You know what happens at high-level academic institutions when you do that? You get kicked out of the school. In the publishing world, there are laws against that. And so let me just be very clear. This morning, some of this material is borrowed. It's not my own. Right? Every pastor probably has to say that every week because there's nothing new under the sun. Um, but there was a particular sermon that I listened to this week from a guy across town at Church at the Cross that helped me as I began to formulate some of my thoughts here. And so some of this is borrowed from him. But listen, through the years, through these ways of borrowing intellectual property, borrowing material property, you're encroaching upon your neighbor's property and thereby neglecting to show them rightful dignity. So that's one thing this means. One implication of this command, you shall not steal. A second implication of this command is this. Is that we should not claim for ourselves what belongs to God. Don't claim for yourself what belongs to God. Now listen, there's at least two ways I can think of that we do this. First of all, we do this with property. With possessions. Right, material property and possessions. I think of Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, when the prophet asked this question to the people, will man rob God? And God responds, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God says, in your tithes and offerings. Now, at first glance, you're like, well, aren't our tithes and offerings the things that we give to God? God doesn't really understand what's going on here. Okay, like we're being generous, giving this back to Him. All right? How have we robbed you, God? We're being generous. We're sharing. Look, what our parents taught us to do as two-year-olds with toys. That's what we're doing with you. And yet, yet God's, God shows up over and over again throughout the Bible as the most frequent victim of theft. And here in Malachi, it says that we rob him through tithes and 
offerings. Listen, this, what, what Malachi says here that the people were guilty of is this, of not returning to God the rightful portion of that which He had given to them and claiming all of their possessions and all of their property as their own rather than recognizing that God had entrusted it to them to be stewards of, to be managers of, not owners of. Right? That's what's going on here. And it's based on this, this principle of the first fruits in the Old Testament. Right? We don't live, some of you might live out on a farm, I'm not sure, but we don't live in an agrarian culture today, particularly in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We live in a very economically diverse culture. But in that day, okay, it was a very agrarian culture. And so you had livestock and you had uh, crops in the fields. And so what you did is as, as you brought in the harvest from the field, the first portion of that harvest went to the temple to, fund, to, to provide for the priests who were doing the work that God had called them to do there in the temple ministry. Or perhaps it was a portion of, of the, the animal that came into the temple and a portion of it was burned on the altar right, as a recognizing this all that I have belongs to God. So I'm giving the best and the first of everything that comes to me. I'm returning back to God because all of it's His anyway. That was the principle of the first fruits in the Old Testament. It was acknowledging that none of what I possess belongs to me, but it's been entrusted to me by God for me to steward and for me to manage. And listen, when we fail to recognize that, when we fail to remember that everything that we have belongs to God, we're merely stewards and managers of, what happens is when we fail to remember that all that we have in our possession belongs to God, we end up replacing God with our possessions. When we fail to remember that all our possessions are His, we end up replacing Him with all our possessions. And everything then becomes ours. And it's a failure to recognize what the psalmist declares in Psalm 24, verse 1, when he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to Him. So how do you know if you're claiming your property as your own rather than recognizing it is God's and you're merely a steward? Let me give you three ways, three benchmarks this morning. The first one is this, that instead of saving you'd be characterized by hoarding. <laughs> There's a difference between those two things. Kent Hughes said it this way. He said, we can enlarge our savings and we can build huge accounts to hold it all. We can plan our retirement so we will have nothing to do but change positions in the sun. We can plan our menus for the twilight years so that nothing but the finest cuisine crosses our lips. We can live as if this is all of life. We can laugh our way to the grave only to discover at the end that we have nothing and are in God's eyes are fools. There's a difference between saving and hoarding. The Bible commends one and condemns the other. Right? In James chapter 5, James is speaking to wealthy Christians and listen to what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, Your riches have rotted. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. That sounds like an appetizing image. In verse 2, listen, James says, he uses that rot, language of rotting and corrosion. His point is this, what is not used rightly or properly deteriorates. Right? Do you recognize that? What is not used rightly for its intended purposes ends up breaking apart, being broken down. 
tearing to pieces. It deteriorates. And the, the wealth that God's entrusted to us to manage, right, whenever we claim it for our own, we're not stewarding it properly, using it for its intended purposes, then James says it corrodes, it rots, and it will be evidence against us that we've replaced God with our possessions because we failed to remember that all possessions are God's to begin with. The second way that you might know that you're claiming your property as your own is this. Is that there's, if you look at your understanding of necessities and luxuries, and those are a little bit skewed. And I think for all of us in this culture, they're a little bit skewed. See, one of the indications of this in your life is that God only gets the leftovers. That He only gets the leftovers. Listen, there was a story in Mark chapter 12, verses and starting in verse 41, that, that we're, is written by Mark, and it's talking about this older woman who is putting in a small contribution into the offering box. I want to read it to you. It says, And he sat down, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called to his disciples and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. See, while some were giving out of their leftovers, the widow was giving out of all that she had. And listen, if you're claiming your property as your own, your possessions as your own, rather than recognizing and remembering that they are God's, then you will spend all of our, your money on yourself as, and you will consider everything as necessities. Even things that we would consider to be luxuries will become necessities. Right? And one of the ways you can recognize that is that there is a, a, a widening gap, right, between your potential lifestyle and your actual lifestyle. See, one of the ways to know this is whenever you look at your finances and go, I could live this way, but I choose to live this way. Is there a widening gap between what is possible for you based upon the wealth that God's entrusted to you and what is actual for you because of where you, or your, what you love, where your values are? Finally, another way to know that you are claiming your property as your own, listen, is this, is that it's always the Lord's calf that dies. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but I'll tell it again. I like it so much. So years ago, there was a British farmer, and he discovered upon going out to the barns one morning that there was his, cows, his cow was pregnant. This cow that he had was pregnant. And as the cow was moving toward birth, he had no idea how many calves were going to come out. But ultimately, uh, the cow gave birth to two calves. And so the farmer came in. Talks to his wife and says, honey, listen, great news. Great news. We got two calves. And listen, because I am such a upstanding, noble, citizen, and generous man, I'm going to dedicate one calf to the Lord and one calf to our family. And so when the calves are raised and it's time to sell them, then we will distribute half of the proceeds to the Lord and we will keep the other half of the proceeds for ourselves, for our family to live off of. And so over the time, the farmer invests time in rearing the calves, raising the calves, nurturing them, feeding them, watering them, everything the calf needed. 
all the medications they needed. So the calves began to come to term, and the farmer goes out into the barn one morning to find one of the calves is dead. And he comes back in to his wife, just downcast in his countenance. And she looks at him and says, honey, what is wrong? And he says, the Lord's calf died. And she says, I don't remember you saying which calf was the Lord's. And he says, oh no, no. I said this calf was the Lord's. And this calf was ours. Right? See, the point of the story is this is whenever things get tight, whenever we hit unexpected circumstances in our lives, right? whenever we face unexpected medical procedures and bills, whenever things happen in our lives that we are out of control of, let me ask you this question. Where do you cut first? Do you cut your giving to ministry and charity first? Or do you cut your spending on discretionary items first? Do you change your vacation destinations and plans? Do you pull back on your clothing budget? Do you pull back on your decorating budget for the house? Your remodeling? Where do you pull from first whenever things get tight? That's one way to recognize whether or not you acknowledge God as the owner of all things and you remember they, they all belong to Him or you've replaced Him. You've replaced Him with them. So do not claim what is God's for yourself with your property or possessions. But listen, there's a second way that we can do this. And it's by claiming the claiming of our persons. The claiming of our persons. See, in Psalm 24, it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It goes on to say in the second part of verse 1, the world and those who dwell therein. He says, not only are all the inanimate things in the world belong to God, and not only do all the animals in the world belong to God, but all the material creation, including you and I, belong to God. Those who dwell therein. And in Mark 12, we'll go back there again. You find the story of Jesus speaking with His disciples about paying taxes to Rome. In fact, one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders comes to him, they ask him a question to try and trip him up, right? And they ask him a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And that's one of the places where Jesus famously says in Mark chapter 12, he says this, he says, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And it says they marveled at him in the way that he responded to this trap question from the religious leaders of his day. Now listen, in Jesus' day, the coinage of the ancient world where Jesus lived belonged to Rome. And it was, a, it was on it, right? Just like our coins might have famous presidents from our history or famous monuments in our nation's, in our nation's history stamped on either side of that coinage. So also in the ancient world, the coinage was stamped. And it was stamped with the image of Caesar. Whoever was the emperor, whenever that coin was minted, had the impression or the stamp of that particular emperor on that coin. And so Jesus, in responding that way, this is what he's saying to them. He's saying, listen, it's like he's taking the coin and saying, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Well, that's Caesar's money. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. 
right? If, you're, if the government requires you to pay taxes, right? You don't move to Montana and open a compound and, and stock ammunition and canned goods and just wait for all the government to come get you. Did I go too far? Right, but that, that's what he's saying. And then he turns the tables on them and he says this, and render to God the things that are God's. And let me ask you a question. In the same way that Caesar's image was stamped upon that coin, where has God's image been stamped? Upon every human life. Including mine and including yours. And so what Jesus is saying is this. Don't claim for yourself your personage, your personhood. Because you've been stamped with the image of God, so give yourself to Him. Pay taxes to Caesar, but give yourself to God fully and wholeheartedly give yourself to God. And one of the things this means, listen, is this, is that God's not just after the recurring contributions that you make online to whatever charities that you're giving to, whatever ministries that you're funding and supporting, even the giving in your local church. He's not just after your pocketbook, but He's after your passions. He's after your heart. He's after your person, who you are. The things that delight you, the things that you find joy in. He's after the things that you pursue in life, your passions. In fact, in Matthew 6 21, it says, For Jesus says, For where your treasure is, that your heart will be also. In other words, where you are funneling your finances, your heart's going to follow. So if you're investing a lot of money in your truck, you know what you're going to love a lot? Your truck. If you're investing a lot of money in your home, you know what you're going to love a lot? Your home. I'm going to hold up a mirror here for a second. If you're investing a lot of money in your boat, you know what you're going to love a lot, even though it drives you crazy, is your boat. It's my curse. (laughs) Jesus says, listen, God doesn't just want your money. He wants your life. He wants all of you. Everything that you are. And so in the same way that there are things that you can look at to recognize whether or not you are claiming your property for yourself and not acknowledging God as owner, there are also things you can look at in your life to determine whether or not you're claiming your person for yourself and not recognizing the fact that God stamped His image on you and that He owns you as your creator. And for those of you who are in the room this morning, you're in Christ, He owns you twice over as your creator and your redeemer. So what do you look at? You look under the surface to see if there's pride operating in your heart. Because listen, I want you to know pride is like spiritual Kevlar. It's like spiritual Kevlar. Okay? And so whenever, whenever God comes to speak through His Word, through His people, listen, your heart is non-responsive because it doesn't penetrate. In a couple of ways. First of all, listen, the spiritually proud person it's not teachable. One of the ways you know you've claimed your life for yourself is that you're not open to the instruction of others. Jonathan Edwards perhaps wrote the greatest treatise in church, at least in American church history, on the issue of pride in the life of a person. I want you to hear some of the things that he says about it. He says this. He says, the spiritually proud person is full of light already and feels that he does not need instruction. 
So he is ready to despise the offer of it. So he looks upon teaching, he looks upon instruction, she looks upon uh, enlightenment whenever the word is opened and says, listen, I, I don't need that. I already have enough light to live by. One of the ways to know that you've got pride operating on the surface and you've claimed your life for yourself is that whenever somebody tries to teach or instruct or guide or counsel you with wisdom or truth from the word is that you push back against it, you don't receive it. Second way you can know that you've tried to claim your life for yourself is that spiritually proud people, Edward says, he put, they put themselves at the center of attention. Huh. Mm. Need I say more? I will. Edward says another pattern of spiritually proud people is to behave in ways that make them the focus of other people. It's natural for a person under the influence of pride to take all the respect that has paid him or her, if others show a disposition to submit to them and yield in deference to them, they are open to it and they freely receive it. In fact, they come to expect such treatment and they form an ill opinion of those who do not give them what they feel they deserve. So they, 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 they want to be the life of the party everywhere they go. They want to have all eyes on them because they're, they're showing out in this life that they're creating for themselves. Not a life that is being acknowledged as being under the ownership and the lordship of God. And then third, he says, spiritually proud people, spiritually proud people, they cannot handle criticism. They can't handle it. He says, proud people take great notice of opposition and injuries and are prone to speak often about them with an air of bitterness or contempt. On the other hand, he says, Christian humility disposes the person to be more like his Lord, who when reviled did not open his mouth, but committed himself in silence to him who judges righteously. For the humble Christian, the more, the more clamorous and furious the world is against him, the more silent and still he will be. See, one of the ways you can know that you've claimed your life for yourself is that if you cannot stomach opposition, critique, or criticism from anybody who's around you, even whenever it's the faithful wounds of a friend the Proverbs speak of that are intended to heal and not harm. Some of us are kind of sitting in that for a moment. <laughs> These are two ways that we claim for ourselves what belongs to God with our property and with our persons. That's the second implication. The third one's going to be real quick. And we're going to be done. Three, this command, do not steal, also carries the implication that we ought to be a giver and not a taker. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul's talking about this redeemed life that we are now to live after having come to life from the dead because of the work of Christ in our life, listen to what he says in Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul says, listen, those of you who's in your former life didn't trust the Lord to provide for your needs, and so you went outside the boundaries that God had placed in order to secure your needs for yourself through theft, through taking that which belonged to another for yourself. But now that you've come to faith in Jesus, he says you are to trust God to provide for everything that you need. 
In the same way, if you go back into Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, that the, God clothes the lilies of the field, that He feeds the birds of the air, trust that a good God is going to provide good gifts for His children. He's going to give you what you need. So don't steal any longer, but rather, as a part of it, entrusting yourself to God, that you work hard at an honest job for an honest day's work, for an honest day's pay, that you give yourself to that, trust that God's going to provide for you through that and for your family. But listen to what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, don't steal anymore and work really hard so that you can provide for your family's needs and family's wants. What he says is this. He says, work hard. Do honest labor and trust that God's going to provide for your needs and that through your honest labor, He might use you to provide for the needs in someone else's life. That's what He says in Ephesians 4. Be a giver, not a taker. Listen, I've had the privilege of being and the blessing of being on both the participant end of that and the receiving end of that. I had the privilege this week of being on the participating into that as our life group uh, came together to help pay someone's electric bill in our community who was struggling. It's a joyous thing to give and contribute to the needs of those who are around us. But listen, I want to boast about things that I've done. I want to boast about what things God has done for me. Back in 2011, my daughter was born. And when she was born, she was born with a birth defect called craniosynostosis, in which her skull bones were prematurely fused together in, her, in, in utero, in her head, and so her brain couldn't develop properly as it was supposed to. And so when she was born, as we sat in the hospital trying to contemplate what life would look like for us, we had no idea that it would require eight surgeries in seven years in order to bring about some of the corrections needed. Two major cranial vault surgeries in which they removed portions of her skull and replaced them with plates and screws so that her brain would have the opportunity to grow and develop as it should. Five eye surgeries to correct eye muscle issues that were related to where, how her skull formed in the womb. When she was born, my wife went on maternity leave. And because she was working in the medical field at a hospital in downtown Dallas, at some of you who don't work in the medical field, you may not know what this terminology means, but she was working PRN, which means as needed. When she came off maternity leave, they said, you're not as needed anymore. And so she was working very few hours. And I was making very little money. <laughs> I've been a pastor all my life. That's just kind of part of the gig, all right? But so she was working very few hours. And we had impending, mounting medical debt that we were facing. And we were part of another church at a time, and a small group in that church came together and they said, Hey, listen, can we do something for you? Can we do something for you? And, I was, and, and what they meant was financially. And at first, right, because I was a spiritually proud person, <laughs> I didn't want anybody else meeting my needs, I didn't want community coming around me. But God broke me of that out of necessity and dependence. And I said, yes. I had no idea the scope of what they were thinking. I just said, yes. And so they had somebody begin to prepare barbecue dinners one Saturday evening after church. And they began to sell them to people as they came out of church that Saturday evening as they passed by our small group room. 
And so they sold dinner after dinner after dinner after dinner after dinner after dinner after dinner. And we're standing there, my, little, my, my daughter, who's two months old at the time, she was facing her first surgery at three months of age. Whenever you see your little girl hooked up in the PICU following surgery, right, full of all kinds of galls and wrappings, and you're just devastated. Right, I handed over to the doctor and physician whenever we went into that surgery, and I went to, moment of transparency, I went to the bathroom and wept. But that night, I saw givers who were no longer thieves, but worked hard with an honest day's work to contribute to the needs of those who were around them. Because they came back to us at the end of that fundraiser, I held my daughter in my arms. And they, they joyously announced the tally of what they had raised. And I was thinking, man, we would be grateful for like a couple thousand bucks. A couple hundred bucks. And they had raised $8,500. $8,500. My deductible was $5,000. Now, out of pocket max, I don't even remember the time. <laughs> you know how that goes. But with my wife out of work seemingly and facing all these medical bills people gave and they gave and they gave and they gave because they understood the implication of exodus 2015 to be a giver not a taker and listen i want you to know this morning as we close there are opportunities to be a giver not a taker all around you in our community. All you have to do is look and listen. Look and listen. And just so you know, you don't walk out of here going, well, I guess now I've got to go be a giver, not a taker. Don't claim for myself what belongs to God and respect people's property and honor their dignity. And by that, I can earn access to God. Listen, no. No. Because you know why because God Himself has been a giver. The greatest giver who's given the greatest gift that could ever be given. As He looked down upon us as a sorry lot of people who had rebelled and run from Him. And that He gave, John says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever might believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That God gave Jesus to meet us in our need. Listen, because the need that we had was greater than the need that my fam financial need that my family had because those resources were material. But listen, God bankrupted heaven spiritually for the sake of His own that He sought to redeem and bring back into a saving relationship with Himself by the sending of His Son. And that's how God has rescued us. And if you've been rescued this morning, you know that it wasn't because it wasn't because you were a giver. In fact, all you did was take and God met you in that by giving. 
And as you came to know the one who gave the greatest gift of all, it began to slowly melt your heart and turn you into a giver yourself. Listen, as we, as we come to a close in our service this morning, we're going to share the Lord's table together. And if you're a Christian in the room this morning, someone, listen, what we mean by that is this, someone who's repented of sin and turned to trust and treasure Jesus above all things. If you're a Christian this morning, someone who's come to know the saving work of God in Jesus Christ, not just somebody who's been raised in church, Okay, but somebody's come to know the saving work of God in Jesus Christ. You've died to yourself, been raised to walk in newness of life. I want to invite you to come to the table. In fact, in Jesus, before, before He goes to the cross, He institutes the Lord's table by gathering with the disciples and saying, listen, as they shared a meal together, He broke the bread and said, this is my body, broken for you. When you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is my blood, of the new covenant shed for you. When you take of it, drink it in remembrance of me. And what that means is this. That you come not only remembering what God has done, but reaffirming your loyalty and love for Him. That's what the word remember means in the Bible. So for those of you who are, who are baptized into Christ and are walking with Him, we invite you to come, whether you're a member of this church or not. For those of you who are not a Christian, we just invite you to stand and witness and watch as we come and take the Lord's table together. I want to invite our, our, our worship team to come forward now and one of our elders to come and serve them as they make their way forward so they can receive the elements and they're going to come and lead us in song as we come to receive the elements as well. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, this one whom... God has given to meet you, to meet us in our need. I want to invite you after the service. I'll be at that kiosk in the back of the room right there. I'd love to connect with you and visit with you about him. And talk to you about how God's grace in Jesus can help you take your fingers off of your life and claiming it for yourself and turn it over to him. And entrust him and manage Yourself to Him and manage everything that He's giving you for His glory and the good of those who are around you. If that's you this morning, I invite you to come. I'd love to visit with you about that. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to stand, sing, and take the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Father, today we thank You for Your grace and goodness in Jesus. We thank You that we could celebrate that this morning through baptism. And we thank You that we could come now and remember it through the Lord's table. I pray this morning for those who may not know you, may not know you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that as we sing this morning, that you will continue to minister to them where they are. And that, Father, they might not leave this place without grabbing the hand of someone they know can help them take that step. Father, for those who do know Jesus, I pray that you would turn them into a, a person and a people who live as if they've been rescued. They, let, they, they recognize your ownership of all things. They respect their neighbor's property and honor their neighbor's dignity. Father, they let go let go of their lives again today.
and become the kind of givers that you have shown us you are through the sending of your son. May you do that as we come this morning to receive the table together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.